Welcome to the California League Research Project Podcast with Mario Ramos. Here's your host, Mario Ramos. Welcome to the California League Research Project Podcast. I'm your host, Mario Ramos, joined today by Dan Taylor, the author of Lights, Camera, Fastball, How the Hollywood Stars Changed Baseball. Dan, thank you so much for joining the podcast. Oh, Mario, thanks for the invitation. It's great to be with you. Yeah, likewise. Um, Dan and I are going to talk about his new books, again, Lights, Camera, Fastball, the Pacific Coast League and its impact on the California League, and the newest addition to single-A baseball in California, the Fresno Grizzlies. But before we get started, we want to remind you that you can catch the California League Research Project podcast on Anchor.fm, Apple Podcast, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at Cal League Search. That's at Cal League Search. So, Dan, the Hollywood Stars, what, what an innovative team um, various aspects. They truly, as your title suggests, changed the game of baseball, really taking advantage of their geography, of the times, and the technology that was afforded to them. Uh, a team and ownership group that really made an impact on the game, right? Absolutely. Uh, you, you mentioned geography, and I, I guess that harkens the old line, uh, location, location, location. Yeah, <laughs> but they really were the glamour team of professional baseball during mm-hmm. their 20-year their run from yeah. 1938 through the 1957 season, and mm-hmm. a mecca for the movie stars, not only uh, in their ownership group, but also uh, in their, uh, their fans as well, and, and fans that were very, very involved in the ball club. Yeah, so really, you know, like you said, location, location, location. Probably couldn't have worked out the way it did in any other city but Hollywood. Yeah, I don't think it would have worked. Uh, no offense to people in Portland, but I, I just don't <laughs> know whether it would have had the same effect. Uh, for sure. Yeah, so that entertainment aspect you mentioned, you know, the, the ownership group, right, involved a lot of people who were in the uh, the movie industry and the entertainment industry there within Hollywood, and they really tried to, to play that aspect out, not on the field, just, you know, sp- in particular, but more so, you know, surrounding the game of baseball there in Hollywood. Well, a little bit on the field in, in a different way. I mean, from an entertainment perspective, you know, they, they would have Abbott and Costello come out onto the field mm-hmm. uh, between games of doubleheaders and do their who's on first routine yeah. And, yeah. and have singing quartets of, of Hollywood celebrities. But no, it, it was really an off-the-field thing, and, and Bob Cobb was, was the genesis of that. He was the owner of the, the famous Brown Derby restaurant and, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, quite a big sportsman. And, and the Brown Derby at Hollywood and Vine was uh, a mecca for the movie stars. It was just up the street from the studios, so they were in there for lunch and dinner, mm-hmm. and he was great friends with many of them. So when the opportunity presented itself in November of 1938 uh, to buy the Hollywood stars, he got on the phone, and from Cecil B. DeMille to Gene Autry to Bing Crosby and on and on, uh, he lined up a group of almost 20 uh, people from uh, the motion picture industry and and they uh, they bought the uh, the Hollywood stars, and, and then from there it went into season tickets and mm. and their participation and and, and fan support of, of the ballplayers. Yeah, and Bob Cobb, you mentioned him. Uh, he the namesake of Cobb Salad. Uh, they're the owner of the Brown Derby Restaurant, and that was something you know obviously too. Uh, we talked about how they changed the game, uh, really innovative in the food side and what they served there on the or at the ballpark, right? Oh, you're just trying to get me hungry, aren't you? I mean, <laughs> and that's one of my favorite parts of going to a ball game, right? Is, is what am I going to exactly. eat, right? What am I going to try? You know, well, and, and Cobb was a stickler because he, he loved baseball. And so the the other club in, in Los Angeles at that time was the Angels, and uh-huh. who played at the original Wrigley Field. Uh-huh. And uh, uh, Cobb just was, was stunned by the, uh, the poor quality, he felt, of, of ballpark food. Uh-huh. 
So when, when he took control of the Hollywood stars, he wasn't going to have it. He, uh, he was a stickler for the kind of uh, hot dogs and buns and ice cream. And, yeah. and uh, you know, he was, he was not about buy, buy low, sell high. He was about quality across the board. And, uh-huh. and he was a man who knew that uh, if celebrities were not happy, they wouldn't complain. They simply wouldn't come back. Hmm. So he was all about making sure that the park was constantly clean uh, and, and having quality food and, and a good product on the field. Yeah, and one of those uh, food items they tried was the uh, electrocuted, or well, I'm sorry, the Frankfurter. The electrocuted Frankfurter. Yeah, electrocuted <laughs> Frankfurter, yeah. So that got me wondering, uh, how do you like your hot dog? <laughs> I've never, I've, I don't think I've ever had an electrocuted Frankfurter, yeah, right? I, I can only assume that that may be one of his innovations that did not catch on. <laughs> Yeah, that was a little interesting too. I was wondering just what that looked like. You know, <laughs> I, I'd seen one on the grill, right, with the char marks and everything like that, but I've never seen one electrocuted. I've exploded a few in a microwave accidentally, <laughs> and I think that might be as, yeah, as close yeah, as we're going to yeah, come. Right? Yeah, there you go. Uh, Mario Ramos here with Dan Taylor, the author of Lights, Camera, Fastball, How the Hollywood Stars Changed Baseball. Uh, you can follow him on Twitter at Wrighton Guy. That's W-R-I-T-I-N-G-U-Y. Um, and you can follow me on Twitter at Colleague Search. Um, so, you know, we mentioned the, the innovations with the food, um, the, the entertainment aspect there. Um, but they also kind of, um, you know, played with the uniforms a little bit, right? We've seen those White Sox uniforms um, that have kind of been infamous, right, with the shorts and the, the collared shirts. Um, but they tried something like that back in the day there in Hollywood. April 1st, 1950, the Hollywood Stars debuted a new uniform, and it was short pants. And the uh, the top, instead of a flannel jersey, was a T-shirt. Hmm. And uh, Fred Haney, the manager, concocted the idea. One of the things he he said uh, to people who questioned it was, hey, it's okay to play soccer in shorts and, and, a, and a T-shirt-like top, so what's wrong with yeah. playing baseball? And, yeah. you know, to the, to the angry players who were not real thrilled about making that change, he said, listen, it'll make you faster. <laughs> it, was a, it was a very light uniform, and, and uh, the very first hitter, uh, in the very first game in which they wore them was Chuck Stevens and and uh, Chuck beat out an infield grounder and and uh, Fred Haney was coaching first base at the time and when the umpire hollered safe Haney rose his, uh, raised his arms and, and turned to the crowd and hollered see I told you they work <laughs> <laughs> but but Haney liked to play a running game he liked to steal he liked to hit and run he liked okay. to squeeze yeah. and and his guys uh, really. You know, sliding on those steals and those hit and run plays and and those squeeze plays really Man, tore up their legs. And uh, guys like Carlos Bernier were pretty vocal in pleading with Haney to to uh, to put the shorts back in the box. And finally, in the '52 season, he did. Yeah, well, I could see the uh, the T-shirt over the flannel type of jersey might be a little more comfortable, especially on a hot summer <laughs> day. But yeah, I still don't get those shorts of baseball because, like you said, you can have to slide, and especially if you're playing that type of ball, right? It's gonna you know have an impact on on your game out there. No question. Yeah, um, you know, the other day I was lucky enough to uh, to be in a Zoom meeting with the the Pacific League, uh, Pacific Coast League, excuse me, Historical Society, and uh, you, you had mentioned something that really, you know, got me thinking. And and as soon as you said it, I was like, man, is that why they do it? Um, but Walt Disney, you know, used to attend some of these games there in Hollywood. And like you mentioned, you know, around the park, they wanted to, to keep people coming back. And one of the things they did was make sure that they clean up, you know, things that were, you know, left on the ground and really make it, you know, a welcoming type place. And that's something that maybe Walt Disney kind of, you know, had an eye on as well. Well, I, I wonder about that because yeah. I, uh, Walt Disney was an original box seat holder. Uh-huh. Uh, like there is a picture out there on the Internet of, of, of Walt Disney sitting in his box seat at Gilmore Field. 
just to the third base side of home plate. And, uh, you know, Bob Cobb employed a a small army of of, of workers who went around the ballpark inside and out, Mm -hmm. cleaning up uh, cigarette butts and wrappers. And he was all about cleanliness. And and so, yeah, I've often wondered, gee, did did Walt Disney get the idea Mm -hmm. from going to Hollywood Stars games? I I don't know the answer to that. We may never know. But uh, that was something that, uh, that popped into my head when I saw that. Yeah, for sure. And that's, you know, as soon as that happened again, I'm thinking about, you know, all those people there at, at Disneyland, like you mentioned, um, that are going around and, and making sure that the place is, you know, pretty much spotless, you know, at times and looks, you know, clean and, and whatnot, just exactly like you're, you're mentioning there. And, and to your point, Mario, uh, a lot of ball clubs did fly out to spend time at Hollywood games and study what they did. Hmm. Um, they, he was after his, at his very first winter meetings following his first season of ownership yeah. in December of 39, he was mobbed at the winter meetings. Everybody huh. uh, wanted to learn uh, and get ideas from him. And, and that, that really happened pretty consistently throughout his ownership. He was oh. a pretty popular guy yeah. at baseball events and, and uh, there were teams, and I, I certainly uh, saw information that the Yankees made uh, a trip out at least every season to, to take in a game and study some of the things that he did. And, of wow. course, you also had, um, uh, you know, the Cubs, the A's, the Browns, the Pirates uh, that, that back then conducted spring training in Southern California. Mm-hmm. And, and certainly uh, they, they were, their people would, would, and the White Sox as well, they would certainly pop in when there were exhibitions played at Gilmore Field to take a look at, at how Cobb's operation was performed. Listen to the California League Research Project podcast with Mario Ramos, joined by Dan Taylor, the author of Lights, Camera, Fastball, How the Hollywood Stars Changed Baseball. You can follow him on Twitter at WritingGuy. That's W-R-I-T-I-N-G-U-Y. Uh, you can check out the book on Amazon.com and Barnes & Nobles. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Search. So, Dan, the Pacific Coast League in the early to mid-20th century was a really good baseball league. I mean, on par with Major League Baseball, you know, the Dodgers didn't leave Brooklyn until, you know, 1957. So, baseball on the West Coast, and in particular, the PCL, was some high-quality ball, right? It was the Major Leagues to baseball fans up and down the West Coast. You didn't have a Major League team west of St. Louis. Mm-hmm. So for fans along the West Coast, this was the big leagues. Remember, there, you didn't have games on television. Mm-hmm. And the Coast League really battled. They tried to, to limit the, the numbers of games that uh, could be broadcast out to the West Coast, big league games that could be broadcast on radio. The Yankees had put together a nationwide network, and, and the Coast League fought it mm-hmm. uh, because they felt that it was going to impact their own product. Yeah. But, you know, for people who grew up in Los Angeles or, or the San Francisco Bay Area, or, you know, the Seals and the Oaks in, yeah. in San Francisco and Oakland, the Angels and the Stars in Los Angeles, mm-hmm. uh, those were big, as good as big league. And, and uh, Wrigley Field, where the L.A. Angels played, was, was uh, pretty much a very comparable, designed by the same architect as the Cubs ballpark in Chicago, mm-hmm. uh, a little bit smaller in capacity. Uh, Seal Stadium in San Francisco was a real quality ballpark. The rest... Yeah. Were a bit smaller, but uh, you know Gilmore Field, where where the Hollywood Stars played, it, it had its its charm, and uh, you know was was very popular with the fans. So it, it, the, the players, you had guys who were uh, right on the cusp of going to the big leagues, uh, and you had a lot of players who maybe were at the end of their career and had just come down from the big leagues. So there were a lot of name players and guys that were about to become name players uh, in the Pacific Coast. Like it was good baseball. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, like I said, quality ball at that time. And, you know, Bob Cobb, you know, we talked about him the with the Hollywood Stars. He wanted to develop his own talent and, you know, own that, that talent, right, and have the foresight along with Oscar Reichow. You can pronounce 
I'm not sure if I pronounced that right, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, but he wanted to get the PCL some minor league teams that would strictly be affiliated with the Coast League clubs. So by 1941, they began playing the newly dubbed California League with teams in Fresno, Santa Barbara, Bakersfield, Stockton, Anaheim, Merced, San Bernardino, and Riverside. Can you speak to the early years of the Cal League and how the parent club, the Hollywood Stars, used their minor league club, San Bernardino Stars, to continue pushing that entertainment envelope? Yeah, I'll go back a little bit farther, Mario, too. Uh, Oscar Reichow and, and Bob Cobb were, were the guys that were the impetus. And, and, and I believe a lot of yeah. it did come from Oscar Reichow, okay. uh, but Bob Cobb was a strong supporter. When, when Cobb bought the ball club, you know, he looked at that whole business model. Yeah. Minor league clubs were independently owned and operated. It's, mm-hmm. it's not like today, you know, where the Modesto Nuts are filled their entire roster is filled by one major league club yeah. or the you know, Fresno Grizzlies by the Colorado Rockies. Mm-hmm. Back then, you had to go out and, and, and buy and sell and develop players. Yeah. And, and Cobb liked the idea of going out and finding really good amateur players and, and trying to develop your own, your own talent yeah. uh, twofold. If you could hang on to them, you could, you could certainly have some uh, players that, that were uh, acquired at a very low cost. Also, if they really developed well, you had players that you could sell to big league teams and make a nice profit off of. Hmm. So uh, the, the second part of that, Oscar Reichow had run the LA Angels before joining the Stars. Okay. And uh, high schools in, in Los Angeles in the 30s were really struggling financially. And, and from 1931 through about 1935, every year it was, it was hit or miss right to almost the start of, of the season whether they were even going to play high school baseball in, in the city high schools in Los Angeles. They, they threatened repeatedly to drop baseball. Wow. And Oscar Reichel was a big proponent of high school baseball. Yeah. And he started signing young players uh, off of these high school teams uh, to give them a chance at professional baseball. And he arranged for an annual exhibition game between the Cubs and the LA Angels with all the proceeds to go to the, the six LA city high schools nice. for their baseball programs. So he was a big believer in the talent. Same with Cobb. When Cobb bought the team, one of the first things he did was sign a really good uh, shortstop from the area uh, by the name of Carl Cox, who was a good player and came back from the war with malaria mm. and didn't reach the big leagues that, that was expected of him. Mm. But you know, they, they started to, to put this idea together actually late in the 39 season, and, and they really pulled the other five uh, owners of, of California-based Pacific Coast League teams, San Francisco, Oakland, Sacramento, mm-hmm. the LA Angels, and the San Diego Padres, together with the Hollywood Stars. Early in 1940, they started having meetings okay. about the idea of creating their own minor league. Yeah. And there was no other minor league in the state of California, with the exception of the Pacific Coast League. So there were some available parks and some yeah. available cities. And, and everybody was in the league was very enthusiastic about it. And, and they had hoped to get it going in 1940, but they realized that, that they ran out of time and, and, and couldn't get it to work. Mm-hmm. So they tabled it until the 1941 season. They had, a, they had a meeting in Bakersfield where they launched it all. And uh, they, each of the Pacific Coast League owners uh, went out and recruited a business associate, a friend, uh, to become an owner of, of a California League club. Yeah. And so when play began uh, in 1940, uh, it was 80 years ago last week um, that they that play began, 1941, mm-hmm. they launched uh, the California League. And yeah. initially, Hollywood was going to be tied into the Santa Barbara Ball Club. And uh, it was a gentleman named Hitchcock who was 
uh, had a connection with Oscar Reichel, and, and they were all excited about it. And then kind of at the 11th hour, uh, the, the Brooklyn Dodgers uh, got into the into the picture, and, and I don't know who initiated it, whether it was the Santa Barbara ownership group or the Dodgers that came in, mm-hmm. but suddenly the Brooklyn Dodgers came in, and, and they signed an agreement to be the parent club of the Santa Barbara team yeah. in the initial season of the of the California League. And this infuriated Reichow and Cobb, who ended up having to uh, scramble together and, and, and put together their own club in San Bernardino, or was it Riverside? I'm trying to recall now. Uh, and and they put their own club together initially, got some of the celebrities together to, to put money in, yeah. and, and they just didn't draw. And, and they midway through the season, they ended up having to fold that club. Mm-hmm. But uh, they remained big believers. They, they scattered their players around, and it, and it developed some really good players for them. One of the young players that they signed was an outfielder out of Fairfax High in Los Angeles by the name of Eddie Harrison. And Eddie Harrison was one of the best athletes in Los Angeles at that time. Uh, he was one of the top football players, uh, appeared ticketed to go to USC, um, and, and was one of the top baseball players and outfielder uh, in the city as well. And his father had been in a really uh, terrible automobile accident and was unable to work, and the family was suffering financial uh, hardship. And uh, Hollywood stars found out about it and, and approached him with an offer, and they were able to sign him. Nice. And uh, he did start his first few games with Hollywood, but they ended up farming him out. Uh, and he played at San Jose in 1941 and was one of the top hitters uh, in the in the uh, California League. And another player that, that the Browns had released, uh, pitcher Manny Perez, a left-handed pitcher, uh, the Browns had him and, and after one season released him. He was from Long Beach. And a Hollywood scout saw him pitching in a semi-pro game in, in Southern California. And Hollywood signed him specifically to have a pitcher uh, with their club in the California League. Well, he... he was one of the, the best pitchers in the California League in 1941. Hollywood brought him in and ultimately was able to sell him for a nice profit to the Chicago Cubs. Mm-hmm. So uh, it was very productive uh, for Hollywood in a few different ways. But ultimately, uh, the, in July of 42, mm-hmm. uh, the California League was put on hold because of the war, a shortage of players, mm-hmm. and uh, did not resume until after the war. And when they came back after the war, big league clubs really uh, – uh, saw the benefit of, of developing players in yep. California. The weather was good, mm-hmm. cities were good, and the, the Pacific Coast League was pretty much uh, squeezed out and, and were no longer involved. Yeah, that's, that's a couple interesting things there to, to see no high school baseball in Los Angeles and the, you know, the impact these guys had on keeping that um, there. I mean, there are just so many you know, good players I know they come out of Los Angeles and to think that they maybe wouldn't have had a shot, you know, to play high school baseball, you know, that's really something. Um, but like you said, you know, they got kind of squeezed out of the California League. But, you know, I, you know, I seem to think that, you know, obviously Major League Baseball got the better end of the, the California League being around here. But, you know, the Pacific Coast League, they're really the ones that, you know, the impetus for, for getting this thing started. Well, in the Pacific Coast League, uh, to answer a couple of those things there, you're right. Pacific Coast League coming out of the war had hoped to gain major league status and and having their own farm system was something that they thought would be a a key component of that and the the ability to develop their players. So it was Mm -hmm. a blow to them, uh, to each of their clubs. Uh, They they continued to sign players, but you know, with the model of of minor league baseball at that time, they were sending maybe four, maybe no more than five players uh, to a, to a club. And the, the relationship that they would have with it would be, uh, one that would give Hollywood first shot at any of the players that that club owned. So hmm. they had uh, Wenatchee up in Washington, and they had Denver, 
um, in the American Association. They had a club in Texas, and they were scattered around. But it wasn't like the California League uh, in their planning where they could fill the roster, have their own manager. Yeah. And it was a lot more like today's model of the minor leagues. And uh, you, know, you mentioned high school baseball in Los Angeles going back. I mean, there was... There was such great talent coming out of there. I mean, yeah. uh, uh, you know, you go back to Bobby Doerr, a Hall of Famer that signed after his sophomore year oh, at Dorsey wow. High. But uh, one of the things Oscar Reichow in, in, in some uh, articles that he wrote in, the, in various papers in Los Angeles, he, he accused the schools of being selfish and uh, putting all their emphasis on high school football simply because high schools were drawing ten to 12,000 fans a game back then in the 30s. Yeah. And uh-huh. so they were making some pretty good money yeah. off of high school football. But as he pointed out, he said, there's no opportunity for a young man to earn a living by playing professional football mm-hmm. at that time in the 30s, not like there is in baseball. And you're doing a disservice yeah. to try to funnel all the kids into football at the expense of baseball. You're listening to the California League Research Project podcast with Mario Ramos, joined by Dan Taylor, the author of Lights, Camera, Fastball, How the Hollywood Stars Changed Baseball. Again, give him a follow at Twitter, at WritingGuy, and give me a follow on Twitter, at Search. So, Dan, uh, you know, talking about those changes there to, to minor league baseball, and we had a, you know, pretty substantial one this offseason uh, where Major League Baseball is taking control of affiliated minor league baseball, and it's obviously impacted your hometown team there, the Fresno Grizzlies. Now, in addition to writing books, you've also been a member of the Fresno Grizzlies television broadcast team. So aside from the contracted teams, you know, the Grizzlies, like I said, were more affected than most you know, by this recent shift as they left AAA baseball in the Pacific Coast League to join the Low A West and the former California League teams. Uh, what's your take on the restructuring of minor league baseball and, and how that impacts Fresno in particular? Well, as you can probably tell, Mario, I, I have a great appreciation for the history of the game. Yep. So I'm not happy seeing a lot of that wiped out. Yep. There is no Pacific Coast League anymore. Yep. Yep. There is no California League, and I think that's wrong. I think the history of the game, the traditions of the game, are a big part of the game. And and somebody asked me about it uh, recently in an event, and I said, you know, I I haven't seen many decisions coming out of the commissioner's office these last two years that Mm. truly have the fans in mind. Mm. And and so it's very disappointing. I I know here it's been a frustration in Fresno. We were a triple-A team in the Pacific Coast League. Uh, Very good fan support. Uh, you've got a, a triple-A-sized ballpark that seats 12,000, mm-hmm. and now you're, you're low-A ball. And so we'll find out very soon how the community uh, responds to that. I'm sure for every club up and down the California League, uh, or low-A West, I guess, i got to get used <laughs> yeah, to that change. Yeah, I'm trying um, to, yeah. But it's going to be tough because, especially in California, they didn't know until just a short time ago uh, if they were going to be able to have fans, and if so, uh, yeah. What percentage of capacity they could they could bring back into into the ballpark? So uh, that affected their off season sales, their staffing, and so a lot of these clubs are playing catch up right now, and it's 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 been tough for them. They've had to lay a lot of people off, and and yeah, it's been it's been mm-hmm. very difficult for them. So it's going to be interesting to see how this community responds and mm-hmm. and how the club is able to 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 handle with it. It's I think it was a very disappointing move. Yeah. Um, so we'll see how it all plays out. Yeah, you know, like you said, you know, used to that Triple A ball. I mean, Fresno's been a part of the California League before, but you know, kind of got entrenched there in the Pacific Coast League. And you know, for a guy like yourself, who's a, you know a member of the Pacific Coast League Historical Society, I know that league is uh, you know near and dear to your heart. And it's just you know, like I said, it's just just kind of sad a little bit to not be able to call it that. You know, like you were struggling there to to figure out what to call it. Um, you know, the Low A West, the California. <laughs> I think we're always going to call it the Pacific Coast League and the California League, right? Yeah, 
I hope so. I hope so. At least you and I will. We'll do our best to keep it alive. (laughs) That's right. That's right. Uh, Dan Taylor here, the author of Lights, Camera, Fastball. Again, uh, you have the Hollywood Stars Change Baseball, the book that you can find on Amazon. Uh, You can find at Barnes & Nobles. You can find him on Twitter at WritingGuy. Just really cool stuff. Uh, I appreciate you taking some time to, to talk baseball here with me. Yeah, it was a blast. Love doing it and hope we do it again. That uh, hope we'll catch cross paths at a ballpark this summer. Yeah, that'd be awesome. That'd be awesome. Try to get down there to Fresno, like you said, and uh, you know, trying to figure out what's going on, how they're going to let people in. Uh, but that's definitely something that's on my on my list to do this summer. So maybe we'll see you out there at Chichancy Park. Look forward to it. Look forward to it. Or maybe we'll uh, uh, swap a uh, an electrocuted Frankfurter in Modesto. <laughs> Sounds good, man. I just go mustard on mine. Like I said, keep it simple. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, we, we want to thank you guys for listening to the California League Research Project podcast with Mario Ramos. You can follow me on Twitter again at Cal League Search. Be sure to catch more of the California League Research Project podcast on Anchor.fm, Spotify, Apple Podcast, or anywhere else you get your podcast. Special thanks to Dan Taylor. We'll see you guys next time. Peace. <laughs>